right. Well, last week we, well, before I start, I, I forgot to say something during our announcements. One of the things that we do as a discipleship team is we try to come up with ways to enhance um, um, our development and maturity in Christ. And um, so one of the things that we offered, as you've seen uh, during Easter, is we, we purchased books, uh, The Case for Easter. Um, and now we're heading into the uh, summer quarter, and one of the books that uh, we would like for everyone to read, and we will purchase it for you, is A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. Now, A.W. Tozer is a very acknowledged writer within the Alliance, uh, and he has several books, all of which are extremely well. Uh, I would encourage you to read his library. Uh, but for this quarter, going from July to August, we are offering for you the book, The Pursuit of God. Now, what we do with that, and we didn't do it with the case for Christ or the case for Easter because of Easter itself was the culminating event that book was to prepare you for. So what we're doing with this book is at a determined date, once we have a sign-up sheet, and I'll ask Faith to put up a sign-up sheet in the back, for those that would like a copy of The Pursuit of God, uh, we will purchase those books, bring them in, and in your leisure, you will read those books. Okay, And then at some point, we're going to come together on a Saturday morning to discuss this book. And it will be facilitated by someone. So, it is a great book. It is very good devotional. Um, so, if you would like to be a part of that, um, it's part of our um, program within the discipleship team to get you engaged in reading uh, books that we recommend that draw you closer unto the Lord. Obviously, the primary book is the Word of God, amen? But there are some talented writers out there that allow us to take uh, a deeper understanding of it as it applies to our life. And that's what uh, the pursuit of God will do for us. So, I, I pray all of you sign up. I pray you all get the book. And Saturday morning, we have a wonderful breakfast, and we have a facilitated discussion on the book itself. And so when you read it, make sure you take notes, highlight, underline, Questions, all those types of things. All right, well, we did finish up 1 Peter last week, right? So we are now going into 2 Peter, right? You didn't see that coming, did you? All right, with that, uh, would you please rise with me? And I'm going to get better. Uh, the last song, I'm going to keep you guys standing, but I keep forgetting to do that. And so you guys sit down, then you stand back up, and you're going, what is this? You know, is this, is this exercise? Um, but in uh, second letter of Peter... Uh, Peter writes, chapter 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. As you can see, we're only going to be going through the first couple of verses. And so would you please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come before you. We come with open hearts and open minds, empty vessels, Father, to be filled by you. We pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, will teach us this morning, guide us this morning, that we would hear the words that you have prepared for us to hear and that you prepared for me to give. I pray that you would bless and anoint me to preach this word, a great privilege Father, one that's not taken lightly, and one I ask that you would bless. And so, Father, open our eyes 
Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, to hear your word so that we may grow in the maturity and the understanding and the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, since November, and I didn't realize, you know, time flies. I started the pastorate in November, and, and uh, time sure does fly. And we started in First Peter. Actually, we didn't. We started with three sermons that the Lord gave me on to know him and to make him known by way of unity, maturity, and community, right? And that's our theme for this year, unity, maturity, and community. And that book right there is one of those things that we're trying to get out for the discipleship towards maturity. And my theme in my series on 1 Peter was that we are to live holy lives. We're called to live holy lives in a world as we sojourn through a world that's hostile to us. And the sub-theme to that was, as you recall, suffering, suffering unto the Lord, and how we are to deal with it, how we are to endure it, uh, what is its purpose and intent, how does it develop us as believers in Christ. And so 1 Peter was written around 63 to 60, 62 to 63 A.D., and like I said, it was about the suffering that they were about to face, or either were facing at the time, of Nero. And we know how brutal that guy was. But Peter now writes his second letter within a year or so, which is kind of close when you look at the epistles in of themselves. And the reason why he does it is he's now concerned for the very churches that he wrote to earlier in 1 Peter. Because something's going on in the churches. Something's threatening those churches. And those threats are coming against the churches, and he wants to make sure that they're prepared and that they're warned. In fact, when we look at the church itself, we see that the church faces two existential threats. There's the external threat, that which comes from the outside in, which is oppositional, which is basically what leads to persecution from the world, from governments, from dictators, from tyrannous, tyrannical leaders, and those who just simply are against the church. But there's also those that come from inside the church. And they can be more dangerous. Because from an op oppositional standpoint, we see them coming. But from an internal standpoint, we may not always see them coming. And so these are the two existential threats that the church faces even today. Now, the threat that Paul, Peter is talking about that is internal is at times tough to discern. It's tough to see. It's tough to detect because it works its way early through the congregation with little to no notice. It usually comes in benign, but over time begins to show its true self after they have made inroads. In other words, they have grown roots within the church. And because Christian churches are inclusive and, and open and wanting to minister to all whoever, whoever may come, the doors are open, and praise the Lord that we are like that. And so sometimes they take advantage of that. 
And if the leadership is not sensitive and discerning and knows the condition of their flock, they could become a disruptive force in the, in the church. And the threat that Peter is talking about is false teachers and false prophets. False teachers and false prophets. Now, false teachers and false prophets have been around since God has given His Word to Moses. And since that time, they come in and ever so slightly twist the Word of God to make it palatable. But in the end, what they're teaching is not true to Scripture. It's not sound doctrine. It's sensual. It's self-centered. It's worldly. Passed off as godly. And as a result, there's turmoil. And I think we've all have seen churches split. We've seen disunity in churches. We hear about that. Praise God that's never happened here. And I believe that's because the leadership is always attentive and ready to deal with it. But that's not always the case in other churches. And I have brothers and sisters in Christ that have told me them being part of churches that split because false doctrine had entered into the church and some were captivated by it. And that's why we need to be mature in Christ so that we can discern the Word of God, rightly dividing it to know what is true and what is not true. That's why your foundation in your discipleship is so important so that it's solid, built on solid ground. Because we know what the Word of God says. If it's not, if it's built on sand, it's shifty and it won't stand. And so Peter's heart as a pastor is now writing this letter to the same churches as his first letter, warning them that false teachers are entering into the church. Now think of that. The church is still in its infant stages. And already false teachers are entering in. Some that even deny Christ in his deity. And so not only does Peter feed his flock as a pastor, he also warns them. Now when we look at the letter as a whole, as we break it down in its groups, we see three categories. We see the first one, and your Bibles might even italicize this at the very beginning of each segment. It says, confirming your calling and election. Secondly, warning against false teachers, which is the predominance of the letter itself, going from chapter 2 all the way into chapter 3. And then finally, preparing for Christ's return. And so as mature Christians, we need to make sure that our calling and election is, is firm and sound and solid and that we're always prepared for the Lord's return because if we do those things, then we're less susceptible to being captivated by false teaching. If we're mature in Christ, as Paul writes in Ephesians, we won't be tossed to and fro by every whim of doctrine. And so with these in mind, these outline segments in mind. This is my theme for 2 Peter. It's be diligent in your faith. Be diligent in your faith. And the reason why I use this theme is because two key scriptures within Peter's second letter that we're going to be studying uses the term. And the first one was in chapter 1, verse 10, where he's admonishing us to be diligent in confirming our calling and the second time he uses it in chapter 3, he admonishes us to be diligent in relationship to always being prepared for the ultimate return of Christ. 
to be diligent. Now, what does that mean? It means to exert oneself and to give oneself fully to something. To be diligent about it. And what we are to exert and give ourselves fully to is the maturing of our faith in Jesus Christ. We are not to be slothful in that. We are always to be progressing in that. I don't care if you're Tyson's age or Henry's age. We are always growing in maturity in Jesus Christ. And we're to give ourselves fully to it. Not slothful, as some would be. Because again, we don't want to be tossed to and fro by every whim of doctrine. And in the world in which we live today, false teachers and false prophets have always been in place. But in the world in which we live today, that cries for inclusion, that cries for compromise, that cries against those who are not progressive, we can get very confused about what we believe and how we believe and what it says. And I'm here to tell you that the the last place you want to be is on the end of a challenge that you're not prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. You always want to have that answer for the hope that lies within you. And we do that by prayer and studying the Word of God. So with this theme in mind, let's begin to examine just the first two verses for this morning's message. And in verse 1 we see Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, I really like how Peter introduces this verse, how he introduces himself in this letter, in that he puts servant before apostle. He puts who he is before his title. And I really like that about Peter, because if you ever understand Peter, if you ever studied Peter, (laughs) normally you would probably think that Peter would put apostle before servant, but he puts who he is in his heart before who he is known in the world. And I think we tend to brush over that term, maybe brush over what it means to be a servant. In fact, the rendering is a bond servant, a bond servant is what is actually being referred to here. And a bondservant is who was a slave who had been offered his freedom, but who of his own volition chose to remain a slave and serve his master faithfully. And this occurred all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, where people were sold into slavery for a debt or whatever the case might be, and they work and they're treated quite fairly, some quite educated. It's not a remnant of of what we've seen in slavery here in the U.S., although that did take place in the Old Testament, New Testament too. But a bondservant was one that sold himself. And after he got his freedom, willfully satisfied his freedom or her freedom and continued to serve their masters. And so here Paul, or excuse me, Peter, is identifying himself as a bondservant And it's not just a mere metaphor. It's who he is. He has willfully given up everything he has to continue to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this definition of a bondservant. I apologize for the font. I should have increased it. 
A bondservant is one who lives a life of service, sacrifice, and surrender. A true bondservant of Christ denies themselves and gives up control as they desire, seek, and follow God's will in every area of their life. And they live a life of sacrifice unto their Lord. Do you identify this way? Do you identify yourself as a bondservant of Christ? Or do you identify yourself just as a believer in Christ and all of that dedication to service, life, will, desires, you reserve for yourself? How do we identify? Is He truly our Lord? Think of what that means. If you were assigned back in those days to a Lord or to a master, do you think you would wake up in the morning and go, you know, I'm going to go down to the market. I'm going to buy me a new mule. I'm going to buy me a new cart. I'm going to go buy me a new house. I'm going to go over to another town and take that job. What do you think would happen when your master woke up and said, where's my servant? You see, that's the mentality that Peter has. I do nothing. Outside of the service of my Lord. Nothing. He leads me. He guides me. He moves me. He shows me. He burdens me. My whole life is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Do we align ourselves that way today? You know, I've said this many times, and I'll share it again this morning. You know, the Christian religion has really, or the term Christian has really become ambiguous in the day in which we live. It means, it can mean anything, really, it's become to be defined extremely loosely. And I know people who call themselves Christians but don't hold to the basic doctrine of God's Word. I know people who call themselves Christians and believe in doctrine that is contrary to God's Word. I know people who say they are Christians and believe in pro-choice. I know Christians who call themselves Christians, who believe you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I know people who align themselves with the term Christian, but their lives don't reflect the term Christian or as it should reflect. I know some that don't, who call themselves Christians who don't believe God's words in error. Can't possibly believe it's accurate. As many times it's been translated and passed down. And yet they call themselves a Christian. That's what I mean by ambiguity within that term. I think a lot of times people just call themselves Christian because they're not whatever else. They're not Islam. They're not Hindu. They're not Buddhist. But they're not atheists either. They hold to some resemblance of Christian. I was raised in a Christian home, therefore I'm Christian. You know, to prove my point a little bit here, I got a phone call this week from a man whose son has moved to Minot, as, as pastors do. They get phone calls. Hey, my son moved. Could you please reach out to him and let him know that, you know, just, you know, sometimes when you move to a new town, you, you're kind of apprehensive, don't know where to go. Sometimes it's nice to get an invitation, right? So he called me up, and we're talking on the phone. And he goes, and he's, he's familiar with the Alliance, but he's never really served in the Alliance. Um, and, and he says, and he, and he starts asking me a whole bunch of questions. What do you believe? What do you believe in this doctrine? What do you believe in that doctrine? What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? What do you believe? And I didn't have a problem. It was a very good conversation, right? 
It reminds me of the conversation I had with a man when I went over on my sabbatical and I was over at the, at the uh, Calvary Chapel and a man came up and goes, you know, I, my daughter's come to your church a couple of times, but I'm trying to understand your doctrine. And he asked me a whole bunch of questions about it. That's the day in which we live today because of the ambiguity of the term Christian. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we're different. You know, I remember when I was first saved, I was like, okay, I woke up, man, after being put to the floor on Saturday night. I woke up, grabbed my Bible that I bought in Korea. Don't even know what version it was. I just went, I need a Bible. Well, this is the only one we got. I'll take that one. I mean, it could have been full of hairs. I didn't know. I just, that's the Bible. So I grabbed that Bible. I started reading it the last six months of my tour in Korea. Forever started to change my life. And when I got here, I kind of went back to doing my own thing. And then finally, the Lord got a hold of me. And at age 27, put me on the floor. Thanks, Jack Van Emp, to be used as a vessel. And I woke up and said, I'm going to church. And I had my Bible, and I'm going to church. I'm going to go find me a church. So I, I said, told my wife, I'm going to church. You know the story. Her head spun around. Next thing you know, I get in my car. And I'm driving down Broadway, and I'm like, that's a church. It's white. It's got a steeple. It's got a couple of cars in it. Okay. I'm going to that church. So I park in the parking lot. I got my Bible, and I'm ready to go. I'm going to that old-style country church. That's what Tim likes. I get up, and all of a sudden, right before I get to the door, for whatever reason, the Lord said, look up. I looked up. And right there was a circular emblem of what that church was. I'm not going to say what it was, but it wasn't Christian. Nope. <laughs> and I walked back to my car, and I came to this church. You see, things can look Christian. It was a white building. It had a steeple. It looked like a postcard but it wasn't Christian. And the Lord saved me from that. Now, what's interesting is in the Word of God, in the New Testament, the term Christian is only used twice. One to describe in Acts, and once by Peter himself in, in, in the first letter, describing persecution and suffering. So then how did the disciples identify themselves? Well, if you go to every introduction of every single letter, you'll see exactly how they identified themselves. They either identified themselves as servants or bondservants, as apostles, as disciples, as believers, as prisoners, but never Christian. And that amazed me, and I started to think about that. Why is that? I think it's because they wanted to be very specific about what they believe, and in whom they believe. So how do you respond when somebody asks you, what are you? Do you simply say you're a Christian? Now, I understand this could be just an exercise in semantics. I get that. But is it? Do we say Christian to leave it right there? Don't ask me any more questions. <laughs> I don't know if I can answer them. Or do we say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ? I follow Jesus Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with telling people that you're a Christian. But I wonder if we need to be a little bit more specific so that people really know what we believe. And so Peter identifies himself as a bondservant in Jesus Christ 
And he's writing to those who have obtained faith of equal standing. And what does that mean? What does it mean by equal standing? And what that means is that although Peter and other disciples were there as a first-hand witness of Jesus' ministry, they walked with him, they talked with him, they prayed with him, they seen him betrayed, they seen him go to the courtyard, Peter, they seen him put on trial, they seen him beaten and whipped, they seen him carry his cross, they seen some of them, John, seen him at Calvary. They witnessed it all. They seen him when he was resurrected. They were there for the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. They were taught. They were reminded. They were empowered. They seen the ascension. They seen the day of Pentecost. They witnessed it all. And Peter is now saying, you have equal faith as ours, even though you didn't see it, even though you weren't there. Do you remember the doubting Thomas? After his resurrection, Jesus, he said, until I see the wounds in his hands and the cut in his side, I'm not believing. And a few days later, here comes Thomas, reveals himself to the disciples. And Jesus says, put your finger here, put your hand in my side. And he did. And then he said this, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. We hold equal faith to the disciples. And the reason why Peter says that is because some people felt that their faith wasn't at the same level as the disciples. That it was inferior. And it's not. It's also equal in standards, our faith as it relates to the foundational doctrinal teachings of the early church by Peter, by Paul, by James, by Matthew, by Mark, by Luke, and others. Because they were very careful laying that foundation of sound doctrine, especially Paul, within the churches. And so there was a standard of faith that was consistent throughout the churches. And the express purpose, as we're going to learn, so that they keep themselves from false teachings, to be distracted, to be captivated away, to be taken away by the cunningness of man. In fact, Paul writes about this in Romans. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites, and they smooth talk and flatter, they deceive their hearts of the knave. Now this faith is of equal standing only because of the righteousness of Christ. Not ours, but His. We have no righteousness on our own. Our good deeds, uh, our religious upbringing, our family lineage does nothing as it relates to righteousness in Christ. Now you may ask, why do we need the righteousness of Christ? Why, why is that necessary? It's a good question. The answer is because we need to be right before God. We need to be right before God because sin 
prevents that. We were all born into sin. We were all separated from God. And we need to be right with God. Therefore, we receive the righteousness of Christ. And it's imputed to us. It's given to us. So that we can be right before God. And so therefore, now we are clothed. By way of faith in Jesus Christ, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And as we see in Jude, we are then presented faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. And it's through His righteousness, not our own. Verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I really love this verse, too, because if you're not careful, you'll miss something here as well. It's very precious. As Peter continues to open up his greeting by saying, not only were we saved by the grace of God and we received the righteousness of Christ, but we have received peace. We have received grace. You know, what's interesting is you really can't have peace without grace. Grace will always precede peace. The greatest moment in my life was my salvation experience, obviously. For some, it was, for some, come to the Lord for the forgiveness of sin and have an opportunity to a new life. And that's certainly true. For others, it's being loved for the first time in ways they never felt before. That's also true. Still others, it was a way of escaping the final judgment of hell as they hang over the abyss. That is also true. And I experienced all of those things during my salvation experience. I wanted all of those things in my salvation experience. I wanted to be loved purely for the first time in my life. I wanted not to go to hell for the sins that I've committed. I wanted to have a new life. I wanted a mulligan because I know that I wasn't living right in my first one. I wanted all of that. But the one thing that I received from the Lord that truly blessed me was that internal peace that He put there when I gave my life to Him. That internal peace, that deep-seated assurance that He is sovereign, that He's in control, and He has His life, my life, in the palm of His hand. That brought me great peace. I was kind of an anxious guy. You could probably tell I still get a little anxious about stuff. And I may not show it at the outside all the time because of maybe a turmoil or a, or a trial or a tribulation or a suffering that I'm going through. But it's always there. It's never left me. And I praise Him for it. And I never experienced peace before that. I've always, expe I've always experienced anxiousness about my future. What am I going to do? What am I going to I mean, I'm going to retire at 38. Then what? I still have a family to provide for. How am I going to do that? I was asking those questions at my 10-year mark. I tend to drive a little bit farther than the headlights show. I was always stressed about making the right decisions in my family. Oh, is this going to be the right one? Is this going to be the right one? 
And as a result, I didn't have peace. I had nothing that anchored me. I could be blown around by a slight breeze. But listen to what Jesus said. The peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How encouraging is that verse? Brothers and sisters, if you're dealing with anxiety, if you're dealing with worry, you're dealing with unsettledness, read this verse and stand on it. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. You see, the world can give you no peace. How many times have you heard of people who won the lottery and it ruined them? So it's not money. How many people have you heard that finally got to the pinnacle of their career and made a mistake and was fired or had a moral complication and was relieved? You don't get peace in what you achieve in this world. Or about the person who landed the perfect job in the perfect place, couldn't wait to get there, found out that they could care, they don't like working for the people that they work for, and it's a stressful environment, and even though everything on the outside looked great, they're miserable. There's no peace in that. The world can't give you peace. The world can't give you security either. And the world can't give you joy. All those come from the Lord. All of them. And through Christ, we have this deep-seated assurance of His peace that even in the midst of turmoil, we're calm. Because He's got this. He's in charge. He's sovereign. I'm His bondservant. He will take care of me. Now, Peter says that this grace and peace will be multiplied to us in the knowledge of God, of Jesus our Lord. Now, this knowledge Peter speaks of is not intellectual knowledge. Okay? When I was young, I knew Jesus. I knew his birthday. I knew his family name. I knew where he was from. I knew what his family or his father did. I knew what town they lived in. I knew his brother's names. I knew his mom's name. I knew his interests at a young age. Loved to go to church. I knew that when he was older, he started a ministry that lasted a few years. I knew his friends who traveled with him. I knew he was falsely accused. I knew he was tried and convicted. I knew he was sentenced to death by way of crucifixion. On the third day, he rose again and promised to return. I knew all of this stuff. Because I was taught all of this stuff in catechism in the church that I grew up in. You see, we can know someone by way of intellectual knowledge, but we truly don't know them on a personal and intimate level. But when Christ was shared with me, and I was telling the boys this by a man named Joel, the Holy Spirit revealed to me who Christ is in a personal and supernatural way that I never experienced before in my life. And this can only be done by way of the Holy Spirit, not intellect, but by way of the Holy Spirit. He brought to life the words that I knew about Jesus. He brought them to life 
in my heart. In fact, Jesus said this to Peter when Jesus asked, well, who do you say that I am? And he said that you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, it's by the way of the Holy Spirit that we are introduced to Jesus Christ in a personal way to where we can have intimacy with Him. And as Peter says, and we'll cover this later in the letter, but now we are then to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When I was first introduced to Jesus Christ in a personal way, I began to read His Word as much as I could, to learn as much as I could about this person that I've just been introduced to in a fresh and new way that I'd never experienced before in my life. I wanted to know everything about Him. And I wanted to give everything I had to Him because of the supernatural work that the Holy Spirit did in my life. So within the first two verses of this second letter, Peter teaches the churches of their equal faith in Christ, which is through the righteousness of Christ only, where we receive grace and peace to live this life in Him in a personal and intimate way. And then he's going to go on to talk about confirming our election to be true. And that's what we're going to cover in the next few weeks, verses 3 through 15. And so even though this is kind of an introduction to 2 Peter, I don't want to leave us without a challenge. Something to think on, something to chew on, something to meditate on throughout the week. So here's the challenge that I have for you this morning, just within these two verses. Peter calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Do we call ourselves bondservants of Jesus Christ? Have we given ourselves fully and completely to Him in His service, in His will, in His desires? Have we received His grace fully and completely and now have that deep-seated sense of peace as only He can provide? Are we growing in the knowledge and understanding of Him? thus nurturing this personal relationship with him. Peter's greeting is not only a prelude to his letter, but it is a reflective challenge upon our hearts. This week, as we read about God's Word and maybe read ahead, which I'd, I'd advise, let's keep that in mind as we read his Word and we do our devotionals and we walk this life in Christ. Let us therefore be that bondservant that Peter identifies himself with. And so, like I said, next week, we're going to be getting into confirming your calling and election within verses 3 through 15. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for your word. And as we begin to explore the second letter of Peter, Father, we just pray that uh, we already know that your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, rightly be able to divide right down to the marrow, Lord, of who we are. And so, Father, I just pray unto you, O Lord my God, that as we prepare ourselves for the study of your word, I pray, Father God, what we heard this morning would be a challenge to us. 
and that as Peter identifies himself as a bondservant, so therefore let us identify ourselves as a bondservant and walk fully and completely in your will for your desire and for your glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.